Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me, not to the book of Romans, I'm sorry, uh, but to 1 Chronicles. That's right, 1 Chronicles. We're going to be looking at 1 Chronicles 28 and 29. Please don't feel bad if you need to just check your table of contents. That's why it's there. We all need to do it. So if you need 1 Chronicles, it'd be really helpful if you had it in front of you, whether it's on your phone or with physical Bible, as we walk through the text together. Why is 1 Chronicles in the Bible? Why is 1 Chronicles 28 and 29 in the Bible? What would be missing if we didn't have these two chapters? Well, these are really good questions. I think we should be asking, especially as I hope that we're a people gathered here this morning with a desire to hear from God. So we need to work through these questions especially as we face a new year ahead and most likely some of the griefs and regrets and sins of this past year. We need to hear from the Lord this morning. So what does he have to say to us in 1 Chronicles 28 and 29? Well, I I hope that we can answer these questions well and let's go to the Lord together in prayer to ask for help. Father, we praise you that we get to be here this morning. We praise you for your word. That you have indeed spoken to us, and we don't have to fear. I pray now that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We admit many of us, our hearts are in a million different directions and thinking about different things. So would you please, Father, move our hearts to desire your word? Unite us to fear your name? And most of all, Father, we want to be satisfied, so we ask that as we study your word in First Chronicles, that you would satisfy us with your steadfast love. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. My name is Micah Spansel. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at Cross and Crown, and I'm really eager to get to study God's word with you, and we've got a lot to cover, so let's jump straight in together. Like I just said, there's a lot of text, so I think the way we're going to work through it together is I'm just going to read a little bit, maybe a verse or two or a little bit of a bigger section, and then I'm going to stop and make some comments. And the goal of that is to, for us to be able to see what the author of First Chronicles wants us to see, what God wants us to see this morning. So we're going to start in 28, actually verse 9 is where we're going to start. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him, with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. What we've jumped into here is really a meeting called by King David of his sons and all the leaders of Israel. And he's talking to them about the construction of the temple. Maybe you remember that David actually really wanted to build this temple for God. But as you notice in verse 10, God said, no, David, I'm choosing Solomon to build my house. And and because David didn't get to build it, he pretty much made a bunch of preparations. Like he, he did everything he could to kind of line up everything nice and tidy to fall right into place for his son, almost as if he was kind of setting up all the puzzle pieces where they're supposed to go, just not clicking them in, and his son just kind of has to come through, click them in, and boom, the whole shebang is put together. Well, here, in verses 9 to 10, what I really just want to point out first is actually the attitude that Solomon is supposed to have. Do you notice the attitude as he pursues knowing and serving God? It's wholeheartedly, 
and willingly, wholeheartedly and willingly, with all of his heart's devotion, not forced into it, not coerced. And those two attitudes, I just want us to take note of them because they're going to show up throughout the text today. And before we keep going, I just want you to be on the lookout for what I think the author of Chronicles is trying to draw to our attention in this first section, really verses 9 to chapter 29, 9. That's the first section we're going to look at. And I think the author wants us to see that everyone is very committed to God's temple plans. And you'll see how, eventually we'll see how, what does this have to do with us? Right now in 28.9 to 29.9, we're going to see their commitment to God's temple plans. So the author jumps in verse 11 with, to give us a play-by-play. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read this part entirely, but we're going to start in verse 11. Then David gave Solomon, his son, the plan of the vestibule of the temple and of its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms, and its inner chambers, and of the room for the mercy seat, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord. And it, and it goes on really to end of verse 18. And what's happening here is the, the author is just telling us, hey, David handed over all of these specific temple plans to Solomon. And that's described in detail if you want to look there in verses 13 to 18 of what all those plans are. We're going to skip to verse 19. Look what David says to Solomon. All this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. So David wants this plan to come to fruition. He's told Solomon, be strong, do it. And now he's just given him all the plans. Let's pick back up in verse 20. Then David said to Solomon his son, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Here again, we're in some fatherly encouragement. Don't be afraid. Solomon, you've got reasons to get this done, to carry out these plans. Reason number one, God is with you. He's not far away. He's not looking away from you. He's with you. Look there, the second reason why you should do it, to not be afraid. God's, gonna, God's not going to leave him, look, until the temple is finished. So, so David's committed to this temple plan, but who else is committed? God. God is thoroughly committed to God's temple plans. In verse 21, David gives reason number three to not be afraid. And behold, the divisions of the priests and the Levites for all the service of the house of God. And with you in all the work will be every willing man who has skill for any kind of service. Also the officers and all the people will be holy at your command. So the people are going to commit themselves to this work too. And this is where David now turns just from Solomon in this meeting to now everybody else and gives them a charge. Look, chapter 29, verse 1. And David the king said to, the, to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom, God, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace will not be for a man, but for the Lord. So I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Okay. So now we're seeing David is very committed. I mean, he is giving financially to this project to see it built. And that's actually not all. Look at verse 3. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own, of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God, 
3,000 talents of gold, the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. So David here is giving from his own personal accounts to God's temple plans. This is David cutting aside, cutting out of his personal assets and savings to put it towards God's plans. So the question here is why? What's the big deal? What's all the hype about with this temple? I think the answer to that question is found in the function of the temple. What, what is the temple for? If we figure that out, I think we'll understand better why so many people are committed so much to this thing. And throughout First and Second Chronicles, we, we find out exactly what the temple functions as. First, we find out that the temple is supposed to put God's glory on display. It's supposed to be a place where God's magnificence, where his greatness is visible to all. Spoiler alert, but this temple was built, and what happens in 2 Chronicles 7, 1 to 3, talks about what happens right after it's built. Listen to this. As soon as Solomon finished the prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God's glory is in the temple. The temple is the visible manifestation of God's magnificence. So it's God's glory. We also learn another thing as we keep walking through that the temple is God's dwelling place. It's where his presence rests. I mean, this is what we've been meditating on the past couple weeks that Pastor Lance has been reminding us, that God is with us. Solomon says in 2 Chronicles 6, 41, he asks God, Arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Resting place. It's where God dwells. It's the temple is how God is with his people. Finally, we, we, we're going to notice that the temple is a place of forgiveness for sin. It's God's glory on display. It's his presence, and it's a place of forgiveness for sin. Second Chronicles 7, 12 to 15. This is what God says to Solomon. Listen close. I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. The temple is a place of forgiveness. So these are the reasons David and God are so committed to this project. Because they knew the true dark facts about humanity. They know that without seeing God's glory, we just worship our own glory. That apart from God's presence is spiritual death. And that we're basically all just swimming around in our spiritual filth apart from God's forgiveness. It's exactly what the rest of the people want too. And that's why they're committed as well. Look at verse 9, or sorry, verses 5 to 9. David says, Who then will offer, catch this, willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then verse 6 describes what happens. Then the leaders of the, ho- the father's houses made their freewill offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and of the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord and the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart, they had offered freely to the Lord. 
David the king also rejoiced greatly. What were their attitudes? Willing and a whole heart. Why? Because they wanted for themselves God's glory, God's presence, God's forgiveness, and that motivated them. Does that motivate you? Do you notice, I love this, what happened when they gave like this, willingly and wholeheartedly? They rejoiced. You see that? The end product of willingly giving themselves and their money to the Lord for his plans was joy. So this is their commitment to God's temple plans. I think it's pretty clear for us to see that everybody's committed to God's temple plans here. And then we get a little bit of a curveball from David. Look at verse 10. Therefore, because of all the giving, therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. So in, D- in David's prayer here, as we keep reading, what we're going to notice is that the author is showing us what's really happening beyond what we can see with our eyes. The author is almost kind of pulling back a veil or pulling back a curtain to beyond what's just visible. Maybe the visible thing, we say something like, the people gave so much. Peter and Darylee reported abundant giving at Cross and Crown. But beyond that, the author's showing us through David's prayer that all of this is really about God. This is all actually about God's hands behind their hands. That's going to carry us to really the end of chapter 29, verses 10 to 20. We're going to see God's hands behind their hands. So the people, they've given willingly, right? It's out of their own free will. They chose to do it. No one coerced them. Nobody guilt-tripped them into it. But it's not the people who David thanks. David blesses the Lord. And friends, this is exactly what the author wants us to see. It's all about God and his plans and how his hands sustain the plans that he has. So let's, with David, look beyond the visible and see God's hands. Verse 10. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Friends, God has greatness. He is big and powerful. He's not small and pathetic. God has power. He's strong and mighty like a warrior. He's not weak and fragile. Notice there, God has glory. He's beautiful, magnificent. He's not dull and boring. God has victory. He's the champion. He's never defeated. God has majesty too. He's a royal king to be bowed down to. And notice there at the end of verse 11 that the reason he has all of these things unlike anyone else, is primarily because, look, all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. He owns everything. Everything is his. Keep reading, yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. This is the God who has all power and might and greatness and strength in his hands. You know that song? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Never knew a kid's song came out of 1 Chronicles 29, right? And when you know God's hands hold everything and own everything, that the response is, of course, going to be like verses 13 and 14. And now we thank you, O God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? 
And what is my people? That we should be able thus to offer willingly. Maybe your translation says that we should be able to offer as generously as this. In other words, we don't even deserve to be generous people. But God gives us so much so that we can give and be generous. It's nice and clear for us in the end of verse 14 there. For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. Of his own. We, so we've given. There's a, there's a human participation and choice in this. But all the while, we're taking from God's hand to give to God. It's like buying mom's Christmas present from the money in her wallet. Verse 15. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. Maybe a translation says no hope. Basically saying, what do we have, God? We're, we're just little breaths just passing away in the air. Verse 16. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. Yes, Lord, we earned these talents of silver with our hands. We saved these precious stones in our Israelite piggy banks. But God, we don't actually own any of that. You do. It was God all along in his hand providing for these things. His hands to accomplish his plans. Hopefully, you're asking, maybe screaming at me in your head, what do we as Christians in 2024 what does this have to do with us? What do we do with this? Why is First Chronicles 20 and 29 in the Bible for us? What does it mean for us as Cross and Crown Church to be committed to God's temple plans? So we're going to talk about our commitment to God's temple plans. Our commitment to God's temple plans. Maybe you're asking, Micah, are you the youth pastor asking us to give our 401k, our savings, and our extra time that we don't have any of to God? and just feel better about it because God's the one who gave all that to us. Well, no, not exactly, but kinda. So just stay with me here because I actually think it's so much more than that and so much better than that because we have our whole Bibles in front of us and, and the Bible doesn't stop at Chronicles. So this temple was eventually completed and, and it was incredible. But then that temple was destroyed and then it was rebuilt. And then that temple was destroyed. But God's plans weren't over, were they? Because this entire time, the temple wasn't God's final plan. God's ultimate plan was always, from before the foundation of the world, something greater than the temple. The temple is just a little shadow of something greater and deeper of an eternally lasting fulfillment of God's glory, presence, and forgiveness. And when that shadow passed and the fullness of time had come, Jesus Christ, God's Son, came into the world as the apex of God's glory on display. Hebrews 1.3 says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And not only is Jesus the apex of God's glory, he's the most personal and lasting presence of God with us. That's what we've been talking about these last couple weeks, that Jesus is God with us. 
And not only is Jesus the apex of God's glory and God's lasting presence with us, Jesus is the place of final and full forgiveness. Hebrews 9, 12. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He secured an eternal redemption for you and for me. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. Friends, Jesus Christ is the greater temple of God. Friend, if, you, if you're here listening and wondering why in the world we'd spend so many minutes with some ancient book talking about some temple, I implore you, just be absolutely honest with yourself. You know that you are a sinner. You may be very kind and quite successful and not have many troubles in this life, but your conscience tells you that you are wicked, that you love yourself more than your creator. Well, the good news today is that we aren't just seeing God's promises as a shadow. God's hands have provided a way for you and for me to have full forgiveness. If only you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. That's all any of us here have done. We've simply believed that when Jesus died on the cross, he took the penalty of our sin. He took God's wrath on our behalf so that we can have forgiveness. We've simply admitted to God that we're sinners and wicked and asked for the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Your life, remember, is but a shadow and there is no hope. Friends, this is what matters. That we, all of us, are wholeheartedly and willingly committed to the fulfillment of God's temple, Jesus Christ. But let's go a step further. If you can, turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, where we're going to see another piece of this. As we keep reading in the New Testament, we learn that when Jesus ascended into heaven, God's glory, presence, forgiveness, they didn't actually leave us. The Bible talks about another temple, a place where God's presence lies. Ephesians 2, verse 20. So then you, Paul's speaking to the church here, not just one individual person, he's talking to the church. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Sound familiar to our passage? But you are fellow citizens when the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation, the crowning jewel, and the church is God's dwelling place by the Spirit. Cross and crown, we as a local church are a fulfillment of God's temple. Not this building, but us believers gathered together in the name of Jesus, we are a spiritual temple of the Holy Spirit together. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, that means that our local church body should put God's glory on display in our lives together. That means that God's presence is with us, even though Jesus isn't bodily with us. And that also means that our body ought to be an outpost, inviting people to find the forgiveness that's found in Christ alone. And I love this. Just like in 1 Chronicles 28 and 29, God is also absolutely committed to these plans. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, 
I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christ died so that the church would send the gospel of God's glory, presence, and forgiveness to people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Those are his plans, and they are not going to fail. Friends, if these things are true, how much more should we be committed to the fulfillment of God's temple than David and the people were to that first temple? Shouldn't we be willing and wholeheartedly ready to commit to Christ and his church? To willingly give our money? But we're talking about something more than just giving money. Are there people in our church body that you know are suffering and you can give them some of your time, share in their pain, comfort them, ask them to coffee and listen to their story? Are you bearing burdens with anyone else here? Are you in other people's mess with them? Can you commit yourself to walking through the icky sin and shame and trials, maybe particularly with the people in your life group? May we have a body who joyfully commits ourselves to gathering together like this every Sunday with eagerness to sing to one another, to hear the word preached with ready hearts. I want to be careful, though, for you to not only just hear that, but for me to be able to echo David's words in verse 17. Would you look with me back in chapter 29, verse 17? I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness, In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here, offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts to you. I I just want to echo David in, in praising God that I've gotten to see you, cross and crown, gathered here today, being a kind of people who have given joyously and wholeheartedly and willingly of your finances and of your time and love and energy to other people in the church, to Morgan and I. You've lived this text obediently. And I I just want to encourage you to keep doing that. I haven't been here for the long haul of the above and beyond, but oh my goodness, in 12 months, I've gotten to see you give freely and joyously of your finances. I've seen you give willingly of your time and energy to one another. Giving willingly and freely of your love to comfort members here in the church who have been hurting and grieving. It's been a blessing to get to see that. To watch you sit with those who are struggling with depression or have hard conversations with those you are concerned who might be wandering from the Lord. And I just want to say on behalf of all the pastors and elders, we have all seen you who are present here offering freely and joyously to God. And that causes us to rejoice. I hope that causes you to rejoice as well. May God keep these purposes in, their, in our hearts forever. But let's be careful to not think that any of that is from our own hands. Just like in David's day, God's hands are behind our hands. God's hands are behind our hands So if we reach into our savings, our bonuses, our our budgeted living, our hard-earned wages, that's something we do out of our own free will. And we give that to Christ and his church for the sake of the gospel. And we confess our sin to one another and comfort one another and give up our time. We have hard conversations. It's of our own free will. But let's pull back the curtain 
as David did in his prayer, and look beyond just what we can see. O Lord our God, all this abundance, all of it, that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. God owns everything. God owns me. God owns you. God owns us. He owns your house. He owns your affections. He owns your body. He owns your spouse and your kids. He owns your phone and your computer. He owns your career. He owns your time. He owns your savings account. He owns your thoughts, and he even owns your breath. It all comes from his hand, and it's all his own. (laughs) Yet in his great mercy, he has entrusted this to us. We aren't owners of any of it, but stewards. So, So when you and I give sacrificially even, and it hurts, it's actually God giving. What a humbling reality that is, isn't it? It's his hands behind our hands. So friends, as we enter 2024, may we remember from 1 Chronicles the God-enabled, God-fueled ability to commit ourselves to Christ and his church, these fulfilled temple plans. This year, give yourself to Christ, the greater temple. Really practical way in 2024, you can give yourself to Christ is to make Bible reading a part of your every day, you, where you push the nose of your heart deep into the truths of Scripture and see Jesus in his glory, know his presence and know his forgiveness, spending time in his word every day. This year, give of yourself to the church, the spiritual temple of God built on Christ. Center your life around the local body, just like you are this morning. The Sunday morning gatherings ought to be a central part of your life where we worship God together, sing together, come under the preaching of God's word. And two, you've committed especially to this group of believers. So care especially for them. Get to know them. Spend time with them. Ask how you can pray for them. Have hard conversations. Commit yourself to this local church as so many of you have done so faithfully this year. But... We don't give ourselves to Christ and to his church because we want to or even because we have the ability to, but because God's hands have provided for us everything we would need in Christ and in the gospel. That's why we can commit to these things, because of what God's hands have done to fulfill his plans, his plans, his hands. I'm going to read 1 Chronicles 29, 20 to close. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. Let's do that together. Father, thank you. You have blessed us with so many things. You've given us finances to stewards. You've given us so many material gifts But even more than those things, Father, you have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. May we never take that for granted. And even as we seek to be people who are committed to Christ and the church here at Cross and Crown, would we never think any of that's even of ourselves? We understand it's your hands that have given to us that we give unto you. 
Would you fuel our hearts with a passion for your mission, for Christ's mission, for the church's mission, to make disciples of all nations? Here at Cross and Crown, in Colorado Springs and beyond, help us to be faithful to this because your hands supply us all we need in Christ and in the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.